Hello and welcome to episode 245. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and this is the In Squash podcast. I don't think we've had uh, an episode quite like the one that we have today with Wee Wern Lou. Uh, as far as squash stories go, this is definitely one of the most inspirational and moving ones that I've, uh, that I've come across in the past uh, few years that I've been doing the podcast. Um, we weren't reached the top five in the world back in 2015. Everything was going well, but uh, I think along the way, as she mentions today, uh, she began suffering a bit uh, physically and unfortunately, uh, shortly after getting uh, there uh, to number five, uh, she had uh, her first of four knee surgeries. Now, uh, she's battled back after each surgery. Uh, most recently, a long rehab following her fourth uh, when she played a hard-fought 3-1 loss uh, to Nadine Shaheen in the Singapore Open. Um, we talk about the struggles she's had uh, over the years dealing with these physical uh, setbacks. And uh, one of the most impressive uh, uh, comebacks, actually, for her was her return from her, her uh, third knee surgery, which was particularly impressive. It was at the Malaysian Open. And uh, we talk about how she went through qualifying in that event all the way to the final, uh, winning the championship without dropping a game. Uh, she talks about that particular uh, comeback uh, that was after her third knee surgery. Um, and her injury woes uh, have also impacted her standing with the Malaysian national team, uh, of which she's been a longtime member. But uh, over the summer, uh, we talk about the controversy surrounding her and her team being dropped unexpectedly uh, from the national team. Obviously, as she mentions, uh, her her surgeries and her injuries had a, a great, obviously, uh, everything to do with that, but it was the way it was handled that irked uh, We Weren't, and we talk about uh, how that all played out. We also talk about the Malaysian uh, squash uh, and world squash legends, Nicole David and Ong Beng Hee, and, uh, and the influence they both had on her. Uh, her squash. So, really good episode. Uh, a different one, a great squash story here with We Were in Low. Uh, now, before we get into it though, uh, we've got uh, a few words to say about our tremendous sponsor, Open Squash, the New York based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. One of the ways Open Squash fulfills this mission is through their Junior Scholarship Fund, which helps support a, a great number of juniors with financial aid. Now, Open Squash's primary vision is, of course, growing the game, and they've brought on board several like-minded PSA pros like world number one Ali Farag, Nathan Lake, who was just on the podcast, a tremendous one last week, Victor Quang, and uh, Gina Kennedy, amongst others. For anyone in and around New York City, uh, come level up your squash uh, skills these holidays with former Brazilian number one, Tessa Serafini, and previous Pakistani junior champion, Ashgar Abbas, bringing the fun and the fire. These two coaches will make sure you leave camp with real improvements to your game and confidence. So for, for anyone who has a break, particularly juniors, what a great way to spend your school break. Start the new year with a real squash advantage. That's open squashes, holiday camp with uh, Brazilian number one, former Brazilian number one, Tessa Serafini, and former Pakistani junior champion, Ashgar Abbas. They're gonna make some big, they're gonna help make some big improvements to your game. The dates for this are December 26th and, uh, through December 30th. 
So, uh, without further ado, episode 245, inspirational stuff here, a great squash story with Wee Wern Low. Sorry, I did it again. I, I forgot to record. Uh, I forgot. No, to no worries. So, let, let's, yeah. uh, so we'll pretend like we were just starting. Okay. okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, no worries. Yeah. I'm at work. I'm at work and I'm a little bit relaxed here. So <laughs> if I'm at home in my office, I'm, I'm all podcasts. So, okay. Okay. All right. So we'll just start from here. So we weren't uh, really, really great to have you on the pod. I don't know why we haven't done it uh, until now because uh, I've been following your career for, for a long time. And I've also had uh, Bang Hee and uh, Nicole David on the pod. So, would, you know, beg the question, why not you? But now we're you're here. So uh, just quickly, uh, just going to go through your resume for those who might not know or younger viewers or listeners. Uh, former world number five, Asian Games, uh, multiple medalist at the Asian Games. I think you got a silver there in the singles one year. Uh, World Team Championships uh, runner-up, uh, amazing accomplishment for the women for Malaysia. Current and currently, you're on the PSA tour, making a comeback after four knee surgeries. So uh, uh, that's an impressive, uh, interesting, um, somewhat uh, unfortunate, but very, very inspiring resume. So uh, welcome to uh, the In Squash Podcast. After uh, after a while, and apologies for not having you on uh, since uh, for for this time. Although I did reach out to you a while ago. Yes, I actually saw that, and I apologize for it. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like two, yeah. three years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because uh, it, it didn't go to uh, to all the messages. It was like a request, so I didn't actually see it at that point in time until recently. I, I saw it. And I'm like, oops, I actually missed that. So my apologies on that. Uh, actually, I should have been a little more persistent, but I thought, oh, maybe, maybe we were and doesn't, uh, you know, a lot of people don't, I don't read my emails sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now maybe the, the best jumping off point would be uh, just sort of get into the nitty gritty over, I think it was over a year ago, maybe 16, 17 months ago, you underwent uh, your fourth knee surgery. Absolutely uh, incredible that you've had to go through that much, but squash is a, it's one of those games. Now, prior to your your first knee surgery, you had reached world number five, playing um, some of your very best squash, uh, probably your best squash uh, at that time. And you've made uh, impressive comebacks from all of these uh, previous uh, setbacks. So if you don't mind, uh, we weren't, if you could just sum up for everybody the, the, the history uh, of your previous knee surgeries before we get into the more recent uh, ones. Yeah, um, so I actually made five in the world a couple of months prior to my first serious injury, I would say. So a few months before that, I actually won the China Open as well, one of the biggest tournaments on tour at that point, which actually got me to five in the world. And unfortunately, one day I just, you know, in training, um, actually against Nicole, we were doing a training match and I just, you know, felt something in my knee. I just twisted it. And to be honest, I didn't think it was that bad. Mm. I thought, you know, maybe I'll be a couple of weeks out a month at the, at, at the most but the next day I went to see my physio and I told her what happened the whole story and she said okay uh, you need to do an MRI first to get it checked because you know from what she hears from my story she said okay it's best to get it checked with the MRI and I did so unfortunately I actually tore my ACL completely mm. and yeah and so you know that was something I did not expect at all yeah so I did my first surgery here in Malaysia Mm. Within a couple of days, actually, I was under the knife and I got the surgery done thinking that, you know, it's quite a straightforward thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was after that, I went through the whole rehab process. And actually in nine months, I was back playing on court again. I actually came back on tour. So I played again about nine, nine to 10 months after my ACL surgery. I've always had some pain, but to me, I knew that my knee was not the same again. So I knew I had to deal with a different, different side of pain. And what happened was I actually got back to, I think, 24 in the world, if I'm not mistaken, at that point in time. And I also just won the World University Championships uh, in Malaysia. Mm. Yeah, so what happened after that was um, there was this physio from the National Sports Council that just came in from the UK. So he was put, um, yeah, so he, was, he had to look after me to see what the progress was like and everything. So we did an assessment and a routine MRI only to find out that the whole ACL uh, graph disintegrated and there was nothing left in there. So I have been playing in the last couple of tournaments with, without an ACL actually. Oh, wow. And did you, uh, I mean, how did that feel? I mean, did you notice it? Uh, you must have noticed something was off. Yeah, but the thing was, like I said, uh, I knew my knee was not going to be the same again. So I knew there was some pain every now and then, but never in a million years, I thought that the whole ACL actually disintegrated and there was nothing left. So I had no choice but to redo everything all over again. Wow, that's a, that's incredible. And I, and I guess the sort of your persistence and your 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 drive to overcome those that, that those uh, setbacks, I guess, started from that point. Yeah, because like I said, I, I've never thought it would happen to me. I'm a fairly fit athlete. I, I mm. train hard and I thought that, you know, if, if any injury were to happen, you know, it wouldn't be something as major as this. Yeah, so it was quite, I would say, frustrating to begin with, especially after coming out from nine months of doing a full rehab after I just got into five in the world as well, you know, having that setback. And what's worse is that after all the work that has been put in, I needed two more surgeries to fix the damage that was done in the first wow. surgery. Hence, I needed, yeah, hence, I had three knee surgeries on my left. And so I needed two more surgeries to fix the, the issue that I had on the, on the ACL. And with that, it actually took me 22 months before I was allowed back on court again. Oh, that, that's, uh, I mean, that's unfortunate, but uh, you did make it back. And the third, uh, the third surgery, uh, the comeback from the third one, uh, was absolutely incredible. If I if I've got my research uh, uh, correct, uh, you made the comeback at the Malaysian Open in 2018, and you went through. Um, I think you went through qualifying all the way to yes. winning the title yeah. with, without even dropping a game. So talk. Uh, uh, so talk about that comeback and uh, what you remember about that event, because you must have gone in. Um, I mean, maybe obviously. Uh, when you're in, when you were sort of at your best form, that would have been maybe winning that event when you would have expected it. But uh, I guess coming through qualifying and not knowing what to expect of yourself uh, given circumstances, uh, how did you feel heading into the event, and what was your what were your thoughts after? Oh, well, to put it in perspective, to begin with, the Malaysian Open was not as big as it used to be. First of all, so last time when I was in top five in the world, I could barely make the quarterfinals because the top 10 in the world were playing. So to put to give some perspective to the, to the listeners this time around, the Malaysian Open, which I actually won, was not as big as this. So it was a smaller scale tournament. I think the top seed was maybe top 30 in the world, probably at that point in time. I'm not sure exactly, but the level was not as big as, or was not as high as, as it was previously. So I knew, obviously, I had a little bit of a chance, but... Having gone through so much on my knee, I didn't know what to expect and, and everything was sort of, you know, we have to take it as it comes because, you know, after three knee surgeries, I really don't know how the body is going to react to it, whether everything's going to be okay, whether I can even, you know, play to a decent level again. Mm. 
Mm. So to come out of that from the qualifying and winning the whole tournament, that was, to be honest, kind of surreal. Yeah. And yeah. And not and not having uh, dropped the game. I mean, uh, I noticed a couple of your matches. I mean, the scores were sort of like 11-1, 11-1. They actually bagged one, one person. I forget. I won't mention their name, but uh, uh, the, there was a bagel in there. But I'm sure like heading in, you know, in those qualifying rounds where you probably expected to win fairly straightforward, you wanted to uh, get uh, get off the court uh, as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, at that point in time, we still have the qualifying. So it's probably a good thing in a sense where I actually have um, easier matches to sort of get myself into into a into a high level match again or seeing the ball and making decisions these are things that you can't really do in training mm. so I think it's good in a, in a way where I had the qualifying matches so I had to build up towards you know the first round quarterfinals semifinals where the matches actually get harder and harder so it was probably a good thing that you know I had a couple of matches then and as for the bagel that was actually um, a mistake because I don't normally do that what mm. happened was even if I was stand up I would lose a point but unfortunately the opponent that I was playing against I served and she hit right into the tin so it was unintentional <laughs> okay <laughs> right on <laughs> right on yeah. uh yeah so that I mean that that was an incredible comeback there in 2018 so I guess you proved to yourself that, that you could do that so obviously um uh, with the fourth uh, setback with your fourth uh, surgery um what uh what was it about the fourth setback that sort of gave you the inspiration uh, to embark on another yet another comeback. I mean, obviously, you don't really have much left to prove. Uh, I don't think, but uh, maybe maybe you feel like like you you can give it another crack and see how far you want to go. Um. Yeah. I mean, before I get to that, actually, when I came back after my third knee surgery, mm. which is on my left knee, I've started to have some issues on my right. But obviously, coming out from a surgery, I did not want to go back into into having one. So for the past, I would say, three, four years, I have been playing with pain on my right knee. Mm. So I've been trying to manage that. And I have know I got to a decent level with the amount of pain in my knee. But it has gotten to a point where I can't get away with it anymore. I had to do the surgery if I wanted to even you know play a decent level again. So I didn't really have a choice at that point in time. So I've actually dragged it as long as I could before I needed another surgery. And as for the fourth surgery, it's a fairly complicated one because like I said, on my left, I tore my ACL. So for that, you know, you have set protocols in a couple of months, this is what needs to be done and you can hit your milestone. So you know you're on the right path. Mm. But unfortunately with my right knee, it was a very complicated and a rare surgery. I had to reconstruct my whole posterior lateral corner and my MCL. So for that, uh, like I said, no surgeon in Malaysia was able to do it. I had to do it in the UK. And mm. even with that decision, wasn't sure if I could, you know, play again or get back on court again due to the severity of the injury and the and the complications that come with it. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, so as for, yeah. No, sorry. I, I was just going to, going to yeah. follow up by asking uh, what did your, uh, what did the uh, surgeon advise you to do or advise yes. you in terms of, uh, you know, going forward? Yes. Yeah, so the surgeon actually, He's one of the most uh, renowned knee surgeons actually in the world. So uh, Dr. Andy Williams, so I sat down with him and he said, you know, if you want to give it a go or even play squash again, surgery is your only option. I can't get away without it anymore. So, you know, he sat down with me and he was very kind to actually give me the appointment. And he's a, like I said, a top class surgeon. So he was, he had a lot of appointments, but he was very nice to actually sit down and, and discuss with me and said, 
he's willing to do the surgery. It will be a complicated one, one that he doesn't know if I can play again as well. But you know, it's it's up to me, and it's a risk. Uh, whether am I ready to take it? Yeah, and you took it. So uh, and so you you've played obviously you've played uh, I think three events started in Singapore, Malaysia, then Hong Kong. Uh, the first uh, match of your comeback was against a very strong Egyptian a young lady, um, uh, Nadine Shaheen, I think. And uh, the, the games were close. I mean, they were all close. So I guess heading into that match and heading into uh, that first match of uh, uh, of the event in Singapore, uh, obviously you must have, how nervous were you? I mean. Oh, uh, well, actually my planned comeback was actually the Malaysian Open. The Singapore Open, um, someone actually, quite a few players pulled out and they had an open slot. So they asked me if I wanted to go over and play the Singapore Open. It was not actually in the plan. Hmm. So what happened was I actually flew in a day before that match. And like I said, I did not know what to expect. And probably it backfired a little bit because I wasn't as ready as I should have been for that match. So, I mean, I went in there, I gave it all out and, and I played pretty decent there as well. But I think that match actually put me back a couple of weeks after because after that match, I was struggling a fair bit and that, that has actually jeopardized my Malaysian and Hong Kong Open. Mm. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it's it's a decision I had to make there and then. It was good points for me and, and obviously good to be straight yeah. into a big tournament like that, you know, to, to have well, that Nadine, exposure to play. Nadine's one of the top young players out there right now. So to go in there, obviously you, you would have had to have exerted yourself and, and played... Uh, played really well to to do as well as you did but uh, like you said maybe that had a, a negative impact on uh, on your progress going forward for the next couple of events yes definitely because like i said i've not competed in over a year and to go in there and play someone like nadine straight away that has actually put me back a couple of weeks because uh, my coach and my physio you know even with the surgeon we didn't know what to expect and if i could play again like i said after a surgery like that so we didn't know what was going to happen after one match. And well, I guess it's good to find out sooner than later you know, how the body reacted to it and, it. and it wasn't great. So we needed to come back and work on a few things to try and minimize the damage that was done in that, in that one match. Mm. Yeah, so it sort of did jeopardize my Malaysian Open and Hong Kong Open. But, you know, it's just good to be able to get out there and just see what I can manage with at this point in time. Right. So I guess, you know, that begs the question after three, uh, three events, I guess the training that goes in uh, prior to each event, maybe a little bit of match play and then actually uh, playing the matches. Um, how, do, how are you feeling now? Um, right now, actually, I'm still working on um, the, I would say, after what happened in Singapore. So now we are sort of we identified a few things that I need to work on, more exercises. And I've only just started getting back on court since Hong Kong, I wasn't able to actually get back on court to do anything. Mm. So, yeah. So it's been, it's been tough, but like I said, it's a trial and error because of the severity of my injury. We don't know how the body will react and we don't even know what we should do moving forward. So had I not played Singapore, we probably would have found this out at a later stage. Right. So to look at it on the positive side, you know, it happened earlier on. So now I have a bit more time before next year and to, to decide how we're going to move forward with it. Okay, well, that yeah, that's exciting. You have, uh, yeah, you have the uh, the break here until uh, what's your when's your next uh, event? What are you going to play? Um, at the moment, I'm looking at probably early February in the in the states. Okay. Yes. So I have yeah. So I have about a 
a month plus about six weeks to try and work out the issues that um that I face in Singapore, and hopefully try and try and sort that out for, yeah, for next a lot year. Of, a lot of events going on in the states uh, towards the the beginning or the first few months of the year. So yeah, that, that sounds exciting. Um, now, just in terms of uh, just to shift gears a little bit, uh, squash in Malaysia, um, unlike most sport, uh, m- unlike m- unlike uh, uh, squash in most other countries globally, it, re- it receives a lot of uh, mainstream media coverage. And um, I believe it was last spring or summer. One one story that made the press, and and you were one of the headlines there, is that. Uh, you were dropped from the Malaysian Malaysia's a uh, national podium program, I think they call it. Uh, yes. Effectively, the uh, I guess that's effectively the national team, seemingly uh, I guess due to to your injury situation. So, just give us a bit of a backstory on what happened there, if you don't mind, and um, how you felt uh, the podium program or whoever it is involved in that, how they handled it. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, it came as. Uh, a bit as a shock because I only actually found out probably two weeks uh, before Christmas. And, mm. and yeah. And so we found out that I was going to get dropped and it's not just me. So if they drop me, it drops my coach and my physio as well. So mm. all of us would actually be jobless in two weeks, you know? So what happened was it was halfway through my injury and I just, I was just barely able to walk again. I had had my surgery in October last year. So mm. in December, uh, we got this news that that I'll be out of the podium program, and mm. yes, I mean to be fair, um, it was fairly frustrating at that point in time. After all, I know I've been on the national team, and I've done a fair bit for the country. I've achieved enough on the squash career to actually be able to call it quits on my own terms, mm. and to have something like that happen uh, with no warning or even at least even a sit-down meeting, you know, sit down and say, look, uh, you're injured, so we need to, you know, cut you out. Um, or, you know, we can sit down and discuss how we're going to move forward with that. But there was no discussion whatsoever. They just, I didn't even get a letter or email or anything, actually. It was just a phone call saying that you're out in two weeks. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't seem fair at all. You, you would think that they would want to... Uh at least sit down with you and, and break the news face to face or, or, you know, just have a discussion about it uh, and not, not just reveal it two weeks uh, ahead of time. On yes. Sort of, <laughs> yeah. And that, that was the, the gist of the, the articles that were, were uh, mentioned uh, or, or the news articles that were there in Malaysia. That, that's really impressive by the way. I mean, I guess that Malaysia's coverage of squash probably dates back to uh, the success of Nicole David, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people like Nicole, Benghi, obviously, they are the ones who put squash um, or even Malaysia on the world map, you know. So mm-hmm. Malaysians are aware of what squash is because prior to that, no one knew what squash is. Everything is about football or badminton or cycling, for example, in Malaysia. So they are the ones who actually started the ball rolling. So yeah. squash is pretty much a, a mainstream sport here in the country. I mean, and you can see how that, uh, take a look at Egypt now as well. It's uh, uh, apparently it's like the second most popular sport in Egypt. And that that comes on, I guess, as a result of how successful uh, their players are these days too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the support from the government and just the sheer numbers, you know, you need that to be able to build something, you know. And in Malaysia, Thanks to obviously Nicole and and Bengi, who's who have been world junior champions and obviously Nicole eight times world champion, 
So that have actually brought limelight for squash in the country. And also that helped us with funding and, you know, companies wanting to come in to sponsor. And it, and the, even the parents and kids, they see the potential in squash. Mm, absolutely, for sure. Now, um, I wanted to ask you about your resume because I, I did, as I mentioned earlier, it is fairly impressive. I mean, you were a top five player in the world. Uh, you've won several PSA events, four-time national champion, uh, runner-up at the World Team Championships, uh, World Team event. And I'm sure I'm, I've left out uh, a lot there. So uh, just looking back, uh, uh, it may be a difficult question for you to answer, to answer but uh, which uh, of uh, those accomplishments uh, are you most proud of? Um, well, I would say it would be a toss between the silver at the Asian Games and also the silver at the World Teams, mainly because for the Asian Games, it was the first time ever that we had two Malaysians in the final. So I played against uh, Nicole David for, for the gold. Mm. And, and at that point, she was at the peak of her career as well. So she's world number one, world champion, everything else. Yeah. So it was, it was the first time to have two of us in the finals, two Malaysians. Wow. Mm. And the second, like I said, would be the World Teams because to get there, we actually beat Egypt. And wow, to beat yeah. Egypt is almost an impossible task. I remember playing that match and Nicole was one. She went up and beat Aranim in a close 3-1. Yeah. And I was up next and I played against Nora Shubini, which is uh, probably wow. she was five in the world at that point in time. She, four, yeah. I think she was four in the world at that point in time. Yeah. Mm. So I had to go up against uh, Nora Shubini, which is a fantastic player, as we all know. Mm. And I mean, that match, we went all the way down to the wire. I think I won 11-9 the fifth to take Malaysia into the finals for the first time ever as well. We've never beaten Egypt or we ever made the finals in the World Team Championships. Yeah, well, that, that's really, that. I've got goosebumps already. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, so Nicole beats uh, Raneem, you beat Norel Sherbini. I mean, they're, they're two uh, people I was, uh, along with Nicole, uh, there you've got three, uh, three of the greatest players of all time. <laughs> Yeah, it's ridiculous because we saw the team lineup, and I, if I'm not mistaken, Omnia was three, and Nora Tayyip was four, and Nora yeah. Tayyip was probably top ten in the world at that point in time. And to have a top ten player as a reserve, as as just a joke, you know, and how strong how strong Egypt is. So how did you manage? I mean, obviously, uh, what was your ranking at that time in the world? Uh, were you five? I, was, I think no, I was not five then. I was probably just making it to the top ten. Okay. Yeah, so but having, I was having to go Shabini, up against uh, Sherbini, and she would have been maybe in four, her uh, 20s yeah. or late teens at yes. that time. So she might, she might, maybe the uh, obviously you were playing really well, but uh, the occasion was a fairly big one. Yes, it was probably one of the biggest because, like you say, you know, we play on the PSA tour a lot, but when you play in the World Team Championships, the feeling is different when you're playing for your country and when you're playing for the whole team and everyone is there. You're not there on your own on a PSA event. So the feeling is actually different to be on court then. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I mean, I probably played one of the best matches I did to even get close to someone like Shabini's caliber. So right. it was a very close match and we're very pleased to to get through that one. Yeah, Yeah. well, that, that, that's really impressive. Uh, impressive stuff uh, we were in now. Uh, you also played, uh, and we just mentioned it, uh, uh, during a time when Malaysian squash uh, was at its peak, and you just talked about that with uh, with Nicole David, one of the greatest of, of all time, and Ong Beng He, world junior champion, uh, and won, uh, I think he got into the, stayed for a while in the top 10 in the world during a, an yes. era of very, yeah. very competitive men's squash. So 
Uh, for you, uh, how inspiring was it to be playing alongside them and training with them and, you know, talking squash with them over the years? And uh, in particular, what did you learn from Nicole and Bang Hee uh, that has helped you uh, over your career? I mean, obviously, one. I mean, I've spoken to Nicole on, on the podcast and uh, we, we talked about just how incredible it, it is that she she was able to remain injury free throughout her career, despite, you know, all the squash that she's, she's played. So uh, uh, just absolutely amazing. And Bang, Bang He, obviously world junior champion and a great career. You must have learned so much uh, from them. Yeah, of course. I think I was very fortunate to be at the same era um, as Nicole and Bang He. You know, I had the opportunity to travel with them for tournaments, um, multiple multiple games event like Asian Games, Commonwealth Games, you know, just to be around them and see how they, you know, conduct themselves both on and off the court, which is I think very important, how professional they are and the things that they do. And also importantly how, you know, how you accept losses and things like that. Because, you know, those are things that people don't really talk about. People look at the wins, but no one actually talks about the losses and how you know how you deal with them and, and how you move on forward from there. And I think uh, that was actually a very important part of the career as well, you know, learning how to accept losses and learning how to learn from it and, and move on and move forward with it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and they're both so, so, I mean, they're super people, right? Really, really great people and uh, uh, humble uh, despite the, you know, how, uh, you know, how much success they've had. Now, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of your success, uh, you've had the same coach, uh, I guess, since you were 11 years old. Uh, Aaron, uh, I could be, is it Soy, Soiza? Soiza. Yeah. yeah. Aaron Soiza. Yeah. And I think I met Aaron when he was a player, we might've played in the same, we might've played in the same, uh, tournament in South Korea one year. I think I might've met him there, but I, I could okay. be wrong. Uh, but anyways, you, you were with him, uh, you've been with him, uh, since you were 11. So I think probably, uh, you know, a lot of your success, uh, over the years uh, and uh, would have to do with him. So just give us uh, a bit of, a, uh, you know, who who he is, a bit of a backstory on on your coach. Um, yeah, so like I said, I've been with Aaron since I was 11 years old and I've always been a very strong advocate for, you know, staying loyal to your team and the people who's been there for you throughout your whole career. So Aaron in particular was one of them who's been with me since I was 10, 11 years old brought me up throughout my whole junior career. And actually, when I decided to take the plunge and play professional, people in my association or even in Malaysia told me to leave the country because they said, you know, as a local coach, I can't do it. And if I stay in Malaysia, there's no way I could break top 10 in the world had I, you know, if I continue training again in Malaysia because no one has ever done it before. Mm -hmm. So obviously, people like uh, Nicole, Bing He and Aslan, the first three was made top 10 in the world, but all of them have done it overseas. So none of them were actually based in Malaysia or training with a local coach. So when I wanted to do it, everybody told me and said that, no, it's impossible. You can't do it. You need to leave your coach. You need to move overseas and you need to find a better coach and a better sparring. So I sat down with him and I said, you know, should we give this a try? You know, do we want to do this together and you know, prove everyone wrong? Mm. So, we, so we go way back and obviously it was a commitment from both sides. So when I first started playing professional, Obviously, I don't have the funds to, to pay him as a coach. So he used to coach me for free in the, in the morning sessions and things like that. We used to work together with, without payment because I, I didn't have the funding to pay to have my own private coach. Mm. So, you know, we worked together over the years until I was, you know, good enough to actually command some payment for him, you know, to a certain extent. 
Mm-hmm. But no one believed in us and no one believed that I could do it locally with a local coach as well. So that was one of the stories that, you know, and that's probably one of the reasons why even after my surgeries, I thought about it. And actually after my first surgery, my mom said to me, she said, you know, you've actually achieved enough in your, in your squash career. You know, you don't have to do the surgeries and you can just do something else with your life, which I totally agree. But I sat down and I thought about it and I said, you know, if I call it quits right now, I'm not just ending my career, but I'm ending the career of the people who's been there with me, my coach, for example. So he, I'm the only professional player that he coaches. Mm-hmm. So if I were to call it quits there and then, that's probably close to the end for his professional career as well. So, you know, to me, it was, it comes to a point in life where it's not just about my goals anymore, but it's for the people who's been there with me, who's believed in me all this while. So as you said earlier, I was dropped by the polling program last year. And that I was halfway through my rehab and my physio was dropped as well. So had I not have the, kept the same team and the people who believed in me, they would have just walked out and look, do something else as well. I would have been left um, halfway learning how to walk all over again. But my physio decided to continue working with me without being paid until I could get it back on my feet again as well. Mm. You know, so I've always been a strong advocate, like I said, to the people around me, staying loyal to your team and staying grounded. So I think that was probably a backstory to, to it. And that's probably the reason why I'm still doing what I am today. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, no, that's fantastic. Just wondering uh, what type of coach, like uh, how would you describe uh, Aaron's, uh, what, what are his skill sets as a coach? Uh, what, what did you guys do together uh, that made him that, that where he was able to get the most out of you? Uh, well, I think it's probably boils down to a good working relationship. Uh, sort of trusting each other because like I said I worked with him since I was 10 and 11 years old so you know we had that trust from a young age and then probably the ability to actually sit down and discuss things moving forward you know there are a lot of coaches where they tell you what to do and that's about it but with him I can actually sit down and say okay look we tried it this way it did not work then should we try something else you know we can sit down and discuss things over and for him as well because it's also a learning curve for him he's not coached a professional player prior to me so we both actually sat down and said, okay, this is what we're going to try and see how this is going to work. And like I said, when I first turned pro, he was not paid. I had no money to pay him as well. So he was willing to you know, do the extra sessions with me in the mornings you know, and things like that, where we are both sort of learning how to, how to make it in the professional world, if, if, if I may say. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, now, one, one other thing that came uh, that I want to ask you about, and, and these days you you'll agree with me, the Ivy League uh, squash or the college squash in the U.S. is just blown up. It, it, it's so successful. And you've got players like uh, Amanda Sobey, Gina Kennedy, uh, Ali Farag, uh, Victor Quinn, all these top players coming from uh, Yusuf Ibrahim, coming from uh, from the U.S. college ranks. You had that opportunity several uh, years ago, I gather, to to uh, to go over and play uh, maybe for Harvard or Yale, I'm not sure, but um, uh, you chose not to. So uh, just wondering uh, what your mindset was at that point, and then if you know if that opportunity, if you know if you were given that opportunity today back then, would you take it? Given given um, how success, given the chance, I mean, obviously, I think back then the U.S. game, the the college game. Is wasn't quite as competitive and wasn't quite as you know. They've got every every top coaches over there. They're coaching every many of the top juniors are over there playing. Uh, and I guess that that would factor into your decision making in terms of 
whether or not you want to go. Um, yes, there were, there are some, you know, like you said, at that point in time, squash wasn't as big as it is now in America, obviously. But I think the bigger issue for me then was um, financially as well. I come from a very humble background. So squash was my way to actually make a decent living. And also um, at that point in time, under the National Sports Council in Malaysia, had I chose to go off to America, I lose all my funding and my allowances here in Malaysia. I was not allowed to do both. So it was, it's not like now where they are actually, the players now are allowed to do that and have the best of both worlds. So she, she but, uh, had the best yes. of both worlds? Yeah. Yes. So she's allowed to, to, to go off and study and still get the full funding and whatever else that, that full professionals get here in Malaysia. So at that point in time, it was either this or that. I didn't have the option of, you know, going there, playing for college, training there, getting a degree, but still being funded by by Malaysia. Mm. So it was it was either either or. So like I said, I needed to make sure I do well in squash so that I know I can I can uh, have a decent living at that point in time. So I didn't have the luxury of actually going off to the US because I know in that first four years I wouldn't be able to make much money. Mm-hmm. because I'll be in college and everything else. So financially, it would have been a lot harder for me in, in that sense. So even for me to actually get there in the first place, you know, I probably need to take a loan or something to even to get to the US. So financially, it wasn't a very viable option for me. Yeah, so, and my rationale was, you know, my actually my mom said to me, you know, um, that she's, she's willing to, you know, mortgage the house or whatever I need for me to get an education at that point in time. But my rationale was that I can always go back to education at a later age as well. So if I don't decide to go at 17 or 18 or whatever it is, I can always get a degree when I'm done with squash. Yeah. So that was the, that was my rationale. And also I sort of made a, a deal with my mom that within a year of playing professional squash at 18 years old, if I don't hit top 50 in the world, I'll actually pack, pack my bags and go off to the US and get a degree and forget squash. Mm. So... So I knew I had to make it. And probably that was the reason why I worked harder than most people because, you know, that was my the, the way out for me. Squash was, was a career and a way out for me to actually make a decent living for myself and my family. That's, that's amazing. And I guess, you know, you, you took the opportunity that was available to you. You know, Malaysian squash, if you reached a certain level and, and reached your potential, would have, I guess, provided some... Uh, decent funding for you and, and uh, that's what you uh, you decided to do yes yeah and that's why like I said I've been on the national team and I've been funded ever since I was 17 years old so to be to, so to be dropped by the podium program two weeks before the end of the year was you know a bitter pill to, a bitter pill to swallow to say the least yeah absolutely well yeah that, that's uh, that's unfortunate uh, we weren't so, and uh, sorry to hear about that happening but it looks like uh, you know maybe next year get some rest over the holidays, getting some good rehab. I love watching those videos. You've got the one uh, where you're balanced on the the, 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 the half. The, yeah. Oh my goodness! I was just thinking, how? I mean, you're you're doing rehab. I can't even do that when I'm fully <laughs> fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been an interesting uh, comeback. Those, balance, those balancing uh, exercises are amazing. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, of course, I need to, you know, obviously after being through so many surgeries, I need to be able to trust my body again. Mm. And balance is one of the key things like strength, you know, you can work on strength, but if you're not balanced enough, you're going to end up pulling something else and things like that. And I can't afford that. So yeah. so obviously we pay a lot of attention to to all these things. And like I said, I'm very fortunate that my physio, Norbert Morton, 
decided to actually stay back and work with me despite not being paid and being dropped by the national team as well. So, so I'm very fortunate to, you know, so sort of have the support of the people who's been with me throughout my whole career, and they're willing to still stand by me at this point in time, even if we all are unpaid, you know, to do this. Well, uh, I want to wish you uh, all the very best in the new year. Uh, we'll be watching, and uh, you know, however it goes, you know, at least you, uh, this is your fourth comeback, right? So, I mean, you don't have, you're not putting too much pressure on yourself. I get that feeling, anyways. But just have fun with it and, uh, you know, keep up the good fight. Yeah, no, I mean, like like you say, it comes to a point where, like, for me, after my fourth surgery, the, my goals have changed. It's no longer I've accepted the fact that I can't get to World Champion World number 1 all those. I've accepted the fact because physically I'm, I'm challenged. Mm-hmm. I will not be able to do it. But, you know, for me right now is to actually be able to sort of inspire, you know, a younger athlete out there dealing with injuries, knowing that, there is a way forward and it is possible with the right mindset, with the right people, you know, there is hope and hope is a very powerful thing. Like for me, I didn't know if I could get back on court. So just being able to get back on court, to step out on court on the PSA tour again, you know, it's just, it's just a different feeling nowadays. Yeah. 100%. Uh, so what, uh, so your first event back will be in the States in February. Most likely. Yes. I'll be looking into okay. that. Yes. All right. Well, all the best in your preparations for that. And uh, and uh, we finally, we made it after a few years. We got this uh, <laughs> podcast in the book and let's do it again uh, at some point down the road. Sure. Yeah, yeah. sure. We'll do. Okay. Thanks. We okay. No Take worries. Care. You too. And- Bye. Inspirational stuff all around from We Weren't There and many thanks for her time. Hopefully the break uh, now uh, until uh, February, which will be her first event back, I believe. Uh, That'll give her enough time to prepare going forward. Uh, Now, just before uh, closing things here today, I just want to say many congratulations. Uh, Well-deserved congratulations to the Egyptian women, Noor El-Sherbini, Noor El-Tayeb, Noren Gohar, and Hania El-Hamami for winning the World Women's uh, Team Championship, defeating a very strong, impressive U.S. team in the final. Uh, But uh, the Egyptian women deserve it. They are by far the best... uh, best players in the world on the women's side and uh, they most definitely deserve that title. I watched a bit of the event throughout and I think what stood out to me obviously was the talent uh, of the top four player. Even even uh, uh, England squad, they looked very promising. Uh, Canada looked, uh, looked pretty good. Uh, Holly uh, played extremely well and almost pulled an upset there in the first uh, match against uh, Amanda Sobey. Uh, but really what stood out to me, uh, besides the, obviously the, the talent uh, of the, the ladies' squash, was the, uh, the lack of, uh, well, were, were the empty seats throughout the event. Um, with the exception of the final, of course. Uh, surprising given the event was held in Egypt. Uh, so perhaps maybe a bit more marketing, a bit more publicity was required uh, from all sides in order to uh, you know fill the seats for the the matches. I guess it's going to be a tough one when you've got a lot of countries uh, there that you're not really familiar with and you don't know the players coming from those countries. But uh, at any rate, you would think uh, you know the excitement of the event uh, you would you would attract a, a few more fans, a few more squash. Uh, 
uh, fans uh, to the event. So hopefully uh, maybe the next time around, wherever they hold this event, they'll take that into consideration and try to fill the seats a little bit more. The squash was fantastic, so you want to get uh, as many people watching it and promoting uh, the game of squash uh, uh, as well that way. So uh, maybe they just took it for granted that people would, would show up with minimal promotion, uh, you know, given the fact that, uh, you know, the Egyptian team is so strong. You've got some other stronger teams as well, but clearly uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, but regardless, Egypt were pretty much a foregone conclusion to win it. And that's what they did, and they—it's a well-deserved victory. Uh, they've, you know, they've been the talent on the, the ladies' tour and the men's tour. Uh, there's a bit more parity these days uh, from uh, players from other countries, but definitely uh, they are the strongest country in the world by far. Uh, and uh, that uh, proof is in the pudding uh, after that event. So congratulations again to the Egyptian women and also to the to the U.S. women who uh, who have a very very strong team and things look quite promising uh, over on that side as well. So congrats to the Sobi sisters, Olivia Fect Olivia Fector and Olivia Blatchford Klein. So congratulations uh, to them as well. And also, just want to thank you, thank everybody for listening. Season's greetings to you all. Happy holidays. Enjoy the time with your family. Maybe get out and play some squash. We'll be back very soon. We've got at least one more episode uh, this year, maybe two. Definitely we'll be rolling out the Marwan El Sherbagi uh, episode that's coming up very soon. You don't want to miss that one. Really, really interesting chat with Marwan. He just came off a big win in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Football Club uh, pro event that's hosted every year. And he'll we'll be talking about that amongst other things. He's had a great season up until now and, and uh, he has a new outlook on squash, a, a new and improved uh, uh, outlook uh, thanks to his work uh, the work that's been done with Rodney Martin so we talk about all of that on the podcast which will be uh, shall roll out in a few days time so stay tuned for that and again happy holidays season's greetings and thanks so much for listening goodbye now